brought to you from Melbourne, Australia. This is the Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players, where we talk badminton, celebrate local heroes, interview players from all walks of life, and push you to grow as a player and a person. Introducing your hosts, Jeff and Henry. Hello, badminton community. Whether you're a long-time listener or this is the first time, welcome to the Badminton Podcast, proudly sponsored by Volant Wear. My name is Henry. And I'm Jeff. And we're the co-founders of Volant Wear, the brand that gives badminton players an alternative to unsightly conventional badminton wear so they can feel confident and stylish anywhere. In short, we make gear that makes you look great on and off the court. So check us out and shop at www.volantwear.com. There are plenty of free resources there that can help you with your game too. And you can follow us on social media at Volantware, V-O-L-A-N-T-W-E-A-R. We're really excited to be here to share with you another episode of the Badminton Podcast. Um, I'm really excited because we've got a really great and exciting guest on today and we want to share him with you and hopefully have him share his stories with you as well. But before we get started, we just wanted to say that we love hosting this podcast for the badminton community. That being said, it's completely self-funded and supported by our full-time jobs, so we'd love your help. In order for us to keep releasing regular and high-quality episodes so many of you enjoy, we have set up a Patreon account where you can pledge just a few dollars per month, which will help us out a lot. So we really appreciate those who have supported us so far, and we've given them a shout-out on other episodes as well, if you heard some of our other episodes. But if you want to help us out, then visit patreon.com slash the badminton podcast to play a part. Now, I'll leave it over to Jeff to introduce our exciting new guest for this episode. Thanks, Henry. So it's my pleasure to introduce you to everyone today. And it's someone that if you do watch some world badminton, you're likely going to recognize his voice. His name is Steen Peterson. He was the assistant head national Danish coach for seven years, and then he was the national head coach for nine years after that. So he brings a wealth of knowledge in badminton from all of his coaching and his commentating work with the BWF. Outside of badminton, he has many qualifications and he's done so many cool things, including our qualifications in chemical engineering. He's done some primary school teaching, project management, other management roles, consultancy, as well as psychology. The most important thing is the relationship between player and coaches. I think the best results you get if you like the ones that you're working with. And then secondly, I think if you want to become really, really good as either a coach or a player, be knowledgeable. It doesn't matter whether you do things one way or the other. So try to become as knowledgeable as you can. And I want to like it to medicine. If I'm mildly ill, I want nice doctor. If I'm terminally ill, I want a fantastic, knowledgeable doctor. I don't care if he or she is nice. I just want them to know what they're doing. So if you can combine that, then I think you have a really, really good coach. So Steen, I know that's a pretty short and brief resume or CV that I've read out, but thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. I'm sure we'll delve into a lot more. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So for all the listeners out there, you probably just heard his voice and thought, I don't know who Steen is. Oh, no, no. Actually, now I do because I've heard your voice. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So Steen... 
let's let's just start from the beginning. I know that you've had a, such a rich history in badminton, and I'd love to know where you started. So, how did you start getting involved with this sport of badminton, and how long ago was it? Well, it was quite some time ago. It was uh, all the way back in uh, 1984, 85. I was uh, playing myself at a uh, at that time reasonably uh, low level. But I, I spent a lot of time in the hall, and one of the other coaches asked me uh, if I wanted to coach young players. And I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. There was a little bit of a salary in it, not much, but it was um, better than other students' jobs so I could have. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much how it took off. And then uh, from there, it just went onwards to... Uh, I decided very quickly to take uh, the challenges that I was given and found out that that sometimes I could actually make some uh, impact on some players. So uh, it sort of became uh, a hobby that then went on to become my full-time uh, job. And I've never worked as a chemical engineer, and I can't remember anything from the education anymore, not even um, easy formulas. <laughs> so it was qualification done, and, and then you just stayed in badminton? I stayed in badminton. Also, my exam wasn't that great. I played too much badminton uh, <laughs> during the education. So um, it took a while. I, I had six months or so where I applied for, for mutual uh, or for several jobs, but didn't get them. And I'm happy for that today. Yeah, absolutely. And so is the badminton community with all of your knowledge and commentating and everything. And of course, badminton in Denmark as a whole. Now, when you decided to start coaching the the young kids and that was put forward to you, did you feel that you were forced to learn a lot more about the sport that you were playing because you had to start to coach it. Did you start to look into it more, research more, do more analytics and those kinds of things because of it? No, I, I actually thought I knew everything better than everyone else, more or less in the beginning, but that only lasted <laughs> a week or so. <laughs> By nature, I'm a, a person who likes to dig into things and, and do research and, and so on. So since I was going to be coaching, I wanted to learn from the ones I was um, I was working next to. That that's a very important uh, point in my opinion. That I've always been working together with other coaches. Only one year I've been the sole coach of a team, but otherwise uh, I've always been working together with other coaches, and I've learned from them. You can always take something from uh, everyone you're working next to and try to implement it or try to modify it to your own style. So that's what's been a big part of my education, coaching with others, uh, talking to them, discussing badminton. So basically, uh, as a person, I'm introvert, but when it's about badminton, then I can talk forever, as you probably will notice or have noticed. (laughs) The true Steen comes out. (laughs) Definitely. And so Steen, if you were to rewind back to all the times where you were with other coaches or you had the opportunity to coach back then. What's your most fondest memory as a coach? Oh, that's that's a difficult question. Luckily, there's a lot of good moments. But I think what I've come to appreciate mostly is to work with people that I like, both players and coaches and leaders. It's so important. You spend so much of your time in your everyday life together with these people and and basically uh, I think it's worth seeking those positions where you work together with people that you uh, like being around. If there's always uh, trouble, always um, discussions, unfruitful uh, discussions, 
if you don't feel that it's great going to work, then I think you should explore if if there's opportunities uh, elsewhere. Because I mean, life is just too short for for these uh, bad working environments. Yeah, sure. And in saying that, the fact that you you're talking about how much you love badminton and how it's been part of your life for such a long time now. Is there anything in particular that really brings you back to the sport? So if you were to stop badminton tomorrow or if you were to stop being involved with badminton or any time in your career, what would be the thing you'd miss the most? What, what do you love about the sport that you think, I, I don't want to give this up. I just want to always have this. Well, I tried it actually for um, a year or two uh, after I uh, quit as the national coach uh, after the Beijing Olympics. I tried to have a, a totally civilian career, if you could say that. And uh, one of the things I missed was um, the quick feedback. I mean, if, if you're in, in a sort of um, civilian coaching, which is a very broad term nowadays, it's a long process. It could take years and you might not ever know the results. Will the people that you work with, do they feel that you've helped? Has it become better and stuff like that? So the action and the quick results, I mean, did we do well today? Did we win or lose? Well, you have that in badminton, and I found that I was missing that. I was also missing the emotional ups and downs. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Losing is a part of badminton, and when you lose, you can appreciate much more when you win. So basically, it's the same that I find in, in commentary when, when you can feel that a session has gone bad you want to do better you want to prepare even more you want to learn from your experiences and then if you're uh, lucky to have a, a session that goes really well where we've had some uh, interesting discussions where we've added to the viewer experience then then you feel the same uh, way as when um, the players coaching is reaching good results yeah, it certainly sounds that you you really enjoy that constant feedback loop provided by the sport it's no surprise that yeah, you're still in it. Yeah, it's really important. Um, to, I, I enjoy these ups and inevitably there's some downs on, on the road as well. Uh, when, when you're in it, you don't enjoy the downs, but it actually makes you appreciate the successes uh, much more. And also the variation in, in everyday life. And I was traveling a lot extensively in the last two years as a national coach and um, and I felt that it was time to take a break. But eventually, um, I got to miss it a little bit. It becomes a lifestyle that you, um, for some part of the year, is on the road. Yeah. And then when you decide to stop coaching the, the national team, if you were going to take that point in time, or even today, and you're looking at the younger version of yourself who was first asked to start coaching, what would be the things that you would say to that younger version of Steen when you started coaching? Um. I would say uh, that it's important to focus on what you're there for. You're there to help other people. You're not necessarily there to prove that you're a good coach yourself. Mm. I was in the beginning when I was coaching young players, I was very focused on getting these young players to win so that they could uh, prove that I was a good coach. And unfortunately that led to uh, some talented players that uh, ended up quitting badminton. I don't know if it was the sole reason, but but I know I didn't handle that situation uh, very well. So as coaches, we often get a little bit over-involved, in my opinion. I don't know exactly why, but it gives you a feeling that you're sort of 
a bigger part of the win if you're very engaged and shouting and celebrating and stuff like that. But from my experience um, in my later years and now in my club coaching in Denmark, I'm mostly much more relaxed and not trying to interfere so much in the matches because I've found out that a lot of coaches are actually disturbing more than I think they're doing well. It's done by a good heart, but there's just so many information sometimes to the players and I'm not sure that it's always helpful. I think you have to find the right doses of, uh, of information. Yeah, that's a really interesting point you made. Quite a, quite a unique perspective to provide there, Sting, because a lot of the times we do, when we have spoken to coaches on here, a lot of it is about the focus on the relationship between the coach and the player. But now it's still you know, similar in that sense, but you're, you're talking about coaching from a position of contribution rather than from the mindset of it's, it's about you and being the best coach you can be. It's really about the player and being helping them develop into the best player that they can be. Yeah, exactly. And, and that can sometimes be tough because, because you feel that you have so many things that you want to work on with this player. But if you do that, it ends up in chaos because, I mean, I've reached uh, or received golf instruction and, and you know that it's not possible to focus on too many things at once. And if you overthink things, thinking, okay, I need my club to go like this and that uh, in a golf swing. If you think too much, it sort of interrupts the technical uh, skills you have because you're simply overthinking it. So there's a saying that I came across um, during my coaching career which is really, really important in my opinion, and that is uh, get your head out of your body's way. You've practiced for so many, many years, so your body knows what to do. But if you are overthinking it, your mind might actually block your body from performing. Yeah. But how do you draw the line between that overthinking and then not thinking enough? So just mindless playing versus too much thinking. I I don't draw the line. I, I try to find it. Sometimes I go above sometimes I go below uh, uh, and I, I've had many funny situations with I had one player turning to me uh, he, he was used to a coach that was talking a lot and talking almost after every rally and I didn't think that was um, beneficial for him I, I wanted him to get into this flow state flow zone and he was playing well and he was still discussing every rally so I decided that I was not going to talk to him all the time in between the rallies and when the rally was finished, I looked at the other court. I just uh, turned my head and looked at the other court. I didn't look at him. And then I, out of the uh, corner of my eye, I can see when the rally was started again. I looked at the rally again, and he was playing well. And then at the interval, he turns to me and says, where are you? Where are you? You're always <laughs> watching the other court. I said, don't worry. Don't worry. We're talking after each rally. We shouldn't be doing that. I want you to get into a flow state, and you're playing great. And just keep on playing. Concentrate. Focus on what to do. And if you're in trouble, I've got you covered out there. I have ideas, I get ideas, but we don't need to talk all the time. But I also have players who, uh, where I've been overcoaching and uh, turned around, said to me while sitting in a chair, oh, shut the fuck up, Steen. <laughs> shut up now. <laughs> There's enough pressure and so on. And that's okay with me because, I mean, I'm there to help the players. So if I'm overcoaching, I need to know. Mm. And, and we can't go into any discussion group Whilst, we're, whilst the player is, is playing a match. So shut the fuck up. It's okay. Instead of, hey, uh, <clears throat> Steen, 
maybe you're talking a little bit too much. Is there any chance <laughs> that you, I mean, you can't say <laughs> that in between the rally. You have to be quick. So I, I don't find the line. And, and, and it also shows to me how important the knowledge between player and coach is to create good results. And I think we see now some long-term coaches are doing well because they know their players really, really well. And the more you know them, the more you know what buttons to push because you pushed the wrong a number of times and learned from that. Yeah. Yeah. So, Steve, what would have happened if the same player who you said kept looking back to see your, to talk to you after each point, what if that player was not winning and not playing well? What would you have done in that situation? You would have been talking. Then I would have been talking. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's my job to, if things are not going well, then I have to come with uh, suggestions on what to do. And if they're still not going well, I have to evaluate whether I'm giving the right suggestions. If I'm certain that I am that, then I need to take over more and more of the decision-making. Yeah. But I also need to evaluate, can the player actually execute the suggestions, the tactical suggestions that I'm given? I mean, I have the perfect tactical solution for every match. The problem is the players, they can't really execute it. So that means that it's, I mean, any tactic that your player cannot execute is a wrong tactic. A tactic can only be good if the player can execute it. Otherwise, it's, it's useless. And one of the things that I've uh, sort of also enjoyed is to get a bigger understanding of these situations, to understand the psychology a bit more, trying to figure out where the player is psychologically, uh, how much can they cope with. And there's been situations where I've been sitting behind the court and I've been fuming inside but every time the player smiled at me, I just uh, has looked at me. I just smiled back at the player because I felt that that was the best way to help the player in that situation where I had so many things I wanted to change, but it wouldn't be of any use. And and the problem is when you lose those matches as a player and as a coach for that player, when you lose those matches, that's really really tough because you have to convince yourself that you're on the right track and that was the best thing to do in those situations, which probably is not the case always. Sometimes you might have come up with some better idea than just uh, sitting there with the with the, the smile. A stupid smile on your <laughs> face and, and think that that was going to be helpful. But, but I mean, there is just some matches that, that you can't win. I mean, most of the times when, when someone played uh, Kim Dong-moon and Rak Jung-min, you couldn't win. So you had to find other things to focus on. So, so that, there's a lot of challenges in, in, in coaching and in understanding people and players and the differences that is uh, always the case. I mean, the, the, the players as well as the coaches are, there's all kinds of players in different parts of life, different life phases, different career phases in badminton. So that's what makes it so uh, interesting being a coach to get the maximum performance that is possible in the match that you're currently playing. Yeah. That's a, that's a really big topic in itself, isn't it? And Steve, it's a we- huge topic. Yeah. <laughs> and with your history or your background in psychology as well, did you take that on and learn more about psychology for the coaching part of it? I, um, let's not overdo the psychology part of it because I'm not a psychologist, yeah. but I'm interested in psychology. When I first joined uh, the national team as assistant coach, I was going through the elite coach education in Denmark. And part of it was a personal development program. And I felt that it was really, really helpful to me. Later on, we succeeded in implementing it with some of the players when I was the uh, head coach. 
And the idea was that if you uh, become more aware of who you are as a person, then you also become a better player. Or maybe you quit badminton because you, you find out that you shouldn't waste your youth playing uh, badminton all around the world. You should do uh, something else, make some uh, inventions, uh, do computer programming or whatever. But we were ready to risk that and saying, okay, if you know yourself better, if you understand yourself and, and, and your um, training uh, comrades, your, your teammates, your opponents better, then we think you become a better player. And I, I still think that is a very, very helpful way to go as a player and also as a coach, because as a coach, you, you need to know what, what the topics are that all people are, are struggling with at times in their lives. So I'm still very, very interested in that part of, um, of the coaching experience. And did that lead you to find players that knew that they actually didn't want to continue pursuing badminton? Did you actually find that? Um, I don't think it followed immediately after their personal development experience there, but it helped a lot of players. There's, there's players that has mentioned that uh, Camilla Martin, the former world champion from 99, is one of them who also went through one of these personal development programs and had a, a total outsider to sit and listen to her and sometimes say that uh, he or she understood her and sometimes said that, hey, isn't it you who is sort of taking a little bit of a strange turn here? Don't you think the people um, saying this to you might be right and so on? So having someone outside the badminton environment that you can uh, have meaningful and confidential uh, discussions with, that's, in my opinion, very, very helpful. Yeah. Absolutely, Sane. Now, if we move on to the Danish badminton system, because you've been involved with the Danish badminton system for many years, I think you said 1985, right? Around that time. That's right. That's right. Yep. Yep. So with your experience in the coaching and being involved and having this exposure to the world's best players, why do you feel that it's Denmark? So out of all the European countries, why do you feel that it's Denmark that can create or produce these top international players like best in the world players compared to say another european country like why denmark what what's so special about what you guys are doing very easy very easy awesome it's very easy we, we have so bad weather in denmark <laughs> the worst weather in europe there is no summer and there is no winter so we don't have summer sports we don't have winter sports we don't have any mountains and we have bad weather, so you have to stay indoor. And we have a lot of badminton halls. Every little small town has a uh, sports hall with normally five badminton courts in it. So I, I know it's a bit of a um, smart <laughs> remark, but to, to a certain extent, I, I really think it's true. We don't have any competition from strong winter sports as Norway, Sweden. They have cross-country skiing and ice hockey and stuff like that. We have some competition from big summer sports as football, which is the national sport in Denmark, and handball and gymnastics and so on. But that means we get quite a good chunk of the um, uh, motoric, talented players to play badminton. You can easily get to play in Denmark, and there's a strong tradition for, for playing badminton. Then we have a very uh, extensive club system where you join a club for membership and you get the uh, recreational players. They sort of rent a court uh, once in a week for a year and so on. Often their children join them and, and feel that it's fun if there's, if there's a court free, they can go in and play. Maybe they want to start playing badminton. 
and there's uh, training set up for the youngsters like two to three times a week uh, with a coach. So a very, very extensive club system with the uh, leagues uh, and tournaments. And um, yeah, Denmark just got on the bus early, so to speak. So there's also the experience that's uh, accumulated in the system, which is really, really important. And the uh, more or less constant feed of players that have been at least in the top in Europe, but also to some degree has been uh, competitive in the world. So a lot of um, idols and a lot of uh, knowledge accumulated in the system, coupled with bad weather. Coupled with bad weather. <laughs> it certainly wasn't the answer that we were expecting from we're like We were thinking one solution. Yes. <laughs> what do we need to do? <laughs> what, what is it? What's the key? What's yeah. the secret? <laughs> yeah. We can't really bring really bad weather to Australia constantly. Hopefully, you know, when Australia gets onto the bus, you know, what I would like to know, you talked briefly about the club system in Denmark. Is there anything in particular about the structure of the Denmark system that you feel is superior to other sort of European or other Western countries as far as badminton is concerned? Uh, that's difficult. That's difficult to say. I don't have that strong knowledge of, of the other countries' uh, badminton uh, system. I, I think there's some things that that are important. But Denmark is a, is a small country, which means that the distances you need to travel to get good uh, sparring partners is not that big. Uh, you can see our neighbor country, Sweden, is a lot more divided and further between the cities. Three uh, big cities: Stockholm, Gothenburg, and, and Malmo, and and people are rarely moving on a daily basis between these three cities. But in Denmark, it's so uh, cramped <laughs> that you can easily find uh, sparring both for tournaments, for team matches, and for, for practice. So I, I think that's easy uh, to get really high-quality uh, sparring in Denmark. And, and I think also that we were in Europe first movers when badminton became Olympic uh, in 1992. Uh, there was a national setup from I think '88 or something like that, where the best players um, gathered in Copenhagen to practice at the national centre. I feel that, uh, for instance, Sweden, who was a dominant nation back then, they haven't really uh, found a way to do it. There's other nations that have come up. France and Germany wasn't strong at badminton at that time, but they have a good sports system and, and set up a system for badminton, and, and I think they're going to be dominant also in the future. And then England got on the bus as well, but a little later than Denmark. And that's why uh, I think Denmark have been able to uh, to dominate European badminton for, for quite some time. But it's um, we can see that, that players are emerging from other countries. We've seen Claudia Marin from Spain. And it is possible, but it's, it's not possible unless you have the knowledge, unless you have the expertise around you. So that's a really, really important thing to get the right people on board. Yeah, yeah. And um, Steen, do you know much about Carolina Marine's story? Uh, yes, I think I, I know quite a lot. Um, okay, yep. Would you mind sharing how that came to be? How did someone from uh, a player from Spain all of a sudden develop these world-class ability to play without the system that you're saying Denmark has? Yeah, I, I think the best thing to do is to uh, get Fernando Rivas uh, on the uh, on the podcast <laughs> here, the, the national coach, and uh, mm, yeah, I think he would be able to tell you a very interesting story. I know that Fernando and Carolina they've written in, uh, at least one book, I think a couple of books in, in Spain about 
how to do it. Um, so that, that's what I meant by you have to have the right people on uh, around you or on board. And, and Fernando is, is a fantastic coach. And so is uh, Anas Thompson, the Danish assistant coach who came on also um, in Spain. So Fernando has been, been seeking inspiration from Asia and from Europe and been good at implementing it. So there could be a Spanish way. And uh, Carolina, I think they discovered her talent, or Fernando discovered her talent when she was around 12 or 14 or, or something like that, and then gathered enough support to be able to um, to do things the right way and build Carolina up and, and develop. And Carolina had the hunger and the dedication to follow this because, I mean, they've been in uncharted uh, territory and say, hey, we're going to become strong. And and people were shaking their heads and saying, what are you thinking about? We're from Spain. We don't play badminton. Yeah. We do a lot of other stuff. We play football. We play uh, handball. We play basketball. and so We don't play badminton. We can't play badminton. And to me, Carolina Marin is the greatest example that badminton has nothing to do with where you come from, who you are, and, and, and stuff like that. It's, it's got something to do with how much do you want it? Can I get the right expertise around me? And is my body able to cope with the uh, workload? But that's perhaps also a little bit about building it up the right way. Uh, so in, in short, that's it. But I, I think um, uh, Fernando would be a great person to have on, on the podcast. That would uh, definitely be uh, exciting. That sounds like a great story to be able to tell because I think that a lot of countries will just the breakthroughs that she's been able to make for Spain. And I heard, I can't remember the exact number, Steen, but it was something like every time Carolina wins a tournament or something, there's X many more participants because of it. And then it, it's kind of like a self-building machine, isn't it? Where you, you get success and then success builds on success because more people see the success, believe that it's possible, and then they get involved. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hope that it's like this, but I think, we all have to be aware of, and, and Spain and other countries, upcoming countries that are doing well also have to be aware of this, that it takes a long time to build the system and, and it takes a long time to, the reproduction time is perhaps a generation. So it takes time before Carolina goes into coaching, before the other strong players in Spain goes into coaching. Some of them will become good coaches. Some of them will not become good coaches because just because you've been a good player doesn't make you a good coach. And they will start working and so on. So it, it will take time and it takes only so little to tip everything and go back to square one. So you need a lot of people to sort of pull in the same direction for a very long time and a little bit of luck as well. Mm. Yeah, that change takes a, takes a long time, unfortunately. Yes, it does. And a lot of effort. And I, I know this is probably, this is going to be a hard question to answer, but Steen, if... If there was consistent effort and there was a player like Carolina Marin in a country like Spain, how many generations do you think you know it would take for a structure to develop? Would it be you know 10, 20 years, 50 years? How long? Yeah, like you said, that's too hard a question. I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. No, no, no. Very, very okay. difficult. I'll ask a question that could be equally as hard. So from my understanding with, say, in Asia, right, because the, the numbers are there, it's a numbers game. So let's just say 1,000 people are in a club and then 50 of them develop good enough technique because they just play and then they just build this natural technique. They watch the, the players. 
and then they form their own techniques and they're all a little bit different, but they're all very effective in the way that they are. So my question for you, Steen, is more on the Danish side. So when you start to bring up club level players and they're quite young, is there a lot that goes into technique training or is it more play, play, play? We try to help you along the way and then kind of the, the ones with better technique, they're the ones that make it further. Or is it more facilitated in the technique learning? Uh, that, that's a big question. Also because I, I've not really been close to youth badminton in Denmark over the past many years. So it's a little bit risky for me to speak out on what I think. But generally, I think that the Danes back in um, 90s, 1990s and so on, considered that they had better technique than the Asians. That was totally wrong. The Asians have a lot better technical skills than the Danes. I think there's a lot that goes into technical training in Denmark because it's fun to practice technical skills. But I also think that we still lack thorough knowledge of the technical skills that are needed. So there's a lot of coaches who has their sort of like homemade philosophy on how things should be done and it's not going to work. And, and, and that's an area where I think badminton could grow the development of coaches and the quick change from strong players to becoming coaches is not helping really either because there's a lot of those players who tend to teach what they've experienced themselves. So I would really like to see some of those coaches getting inputs from outside, from the way Asians are learning technical skills and so on. But there's also the beauty of badminton that, I mean, there's no um, right or wrong in technical skills altogether. But in terms of a clear or a smash or whatever, there is some rights or wrongs. So I think there's a lot of Danes that practice a lot of technical skills. They could benefit from practicing a lot of footwork as well a lot of physicality, but that's not so fun. And that's where it's really fun-driven in Denmark to a large extent. People play because they enjoy it. So there's work being done to create a more correct way of coming forward. But it's also something to do with maturity because most people tend to uh, select by results and results are uh, dependent on size uh, when you're a, a young player. So if you're strong and um, a head taller than uh, most of your competitors at age 12, then there's a good chance that with reasonable technical skills and footwork skills that you can be a dominant player. You might not become the um, international player when everyone is, is grown up. And that means that um, it's really, really difficult with selections and trials and so on. We also see a number of parents becoming more and more pushy regarding uh, their own kids practice and performance and, and that's also in an area that's very very interesting yeah so I, I don't know really if that was the answer of my question I've just uh, sort of um, gotten myself into a long long talk I don't know really what the <laughs> point is I think it's fun driven in Denmark mostly and there is a lot of technical uh, training where I think it could be divided a little bit more between um, physical and tactical yeah, we are able to just sort of dissect your brain a little bit there, Steen, with uh, with where you went with that one, which is, <laughs> which is good. Um, but speaking of fun, I want to, I guess, transition this from coaching to commentating and wanting to get, get a bit of an idea of how does one like yourself, well, how did you get from coaching to commentating? Well, um, the first commentary I was doing was actually in Hong Kong where all uh, the players from Denmark had lost early and there was going to be television coverage of the uh, semi-final and the finals. 
And someone was asking me whether I could co-commentate. I said, I don't know, I've never done it before. And, and uh, I'm not a native English speaker and so on. So, but they calmed me down and said, don't worry. It's midday in Hong Kong, so not a whole lot of will be watching. And it's also in English, so even fewer will be watching. So it will only be a few people see you uh, mess <laughs> up as, or hear you mess up as a co-commentator. And, and we have a good lead commentator. Can you just explain him what the different strokes in badminton is called? So he knew absolutely nothing about it. And after that experience, which was quite fun with the mix of smashes and drops and all kinds of wrong names, <laughs> there was a big, big gap. And I think it was back in 2012 where I was uh, given the opportunity by the rights holders back then. And um, yeah, then it's been um, becoming more and more. And uh, I, I felt that it was something that I enjoyed doing. So I, I would want to do more of it if I could and uh, sort of kept the schedule open for possible um, events. Yeah, it's, it's been a little bit like my coaching career, starting small, someone said, can you do this? And then uh, I just hung in there, more or less. And learning a lot, of course, because I had really a lot to learn and got tremendous help from Jill Clark. Uh, okay, yeah. Who is uh, the most experienced and best commentator in the badminton world i think pretty much everyone uh, agrees about that so sometimes when i start a sentence and figure out that i don't have the english vocabulary to finish it she can help me out and uh, she knows <laughs> she understands what most of the things i'm talking what about sometimes yeah 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 exactly <laughs> so for a single match or even if it's for several matches let's just say we're watching one court for quarterfinals or semifinals, for example, how much behind the scenes preparation work is there to do before you actually go on onto the air? Well, there's a lot. <laughs> That's why we're, we're really um, sitting on needles, so to speak, when scheduled for next day is out because oh, yeah. then it's mostly the lead commentator. Um, there's some tournaments on the color commentator with another lead, mostly Jill Clark, but also other leads. And then there's some smaller tournaments where I'm the only commentator and um, it's a different workload in the moment. I mean, to be the color commentator, of course, watched numerous matches throughout uh, my badminton life. So they helped me as sort of a, a backup database, more or less, when I'm the color commentator. But, but when I'm uh, working alone, uh, there's a lot of work to be done, figuring out the stats, the player, the correct player, biographies and, and stuff like that. It comes on, on, on the um, broadcast, but uh, it's not always fully extensive. And you want to, I mean, your job is to add to the viewer experience. So you have to figure out what could be the implications in this match, what could be nice to know. And I, I sometimes get obsessed with things, for instance, that uh, Kento Momota, I think is coming from a, a an area of Japan where they make square watermelons. Uh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's the depth. Well, yeah, I yeah. think pretty fun. Yeah. So uh, I would say roughly an hour per match when you're the lead or the uh, solo commentator. Okay. The, the thing is that when you actually hear a match, let's say you hear uh, two games in a men's singles as a lead commentator or a solo commentator, you probably hear 20% of the information that we've got on the match. Mm. There's probably 80% more that is not really finding its way to the microphone uh, because it's not suitable uh, 
there could be situations where people are, are down uh, quite a bit, uh, maybe eight, nine points. When have they last been down? Have they come back or stuff like that? And especially if it's doubles pairings and it's players that you haven't seen before, then you have to start from uh, more or less scratch. So that, that's, that's easily an hour per, per match uh, in preparation. Yeah. Yeah. And with that, with that hour of preparation, do you have like a document somewhere or is it like a handout where you've just got, you know, pages and pages of information that you're trying to sort through while you're commentating and just sort of mute? And- it is in tennis. Yeah. It is in tennis and badminton. You have to dig it all up yourself. There's, there's no handouts. There's nothing. Oh, the, okay. So yeah. I know Jill, Jill's database uh, is really, really extensive. I think she must have overweight when she's flying out to the tournaments because she needs to bring a database. Now, now the computer is there. That's a good thing. But mine is um, it's on a computer. It's on a file. And obviously, it's a lot fewer players because I don't do that many tournaments solo. But it also means that there's a lot more players that I don't have any records on and I have to create from scratch. Yeah. Okay. So, Steen, if we go into your ability to analyze one particular match, so if you're you're commentating, and yes, you've done your research, but of course you need to commentate based on your assessment of that current match that you're watching, right? So, in terms of the way that you analyze the match that you're commentating or when you're a coach, if you were analyzing a certain video of the opponent, for example, is there a certain system or a way that you tend to analyze a match so let's just say someone listening to this podcast is saying hey i've got some recordings of myself or my opponent but i don't actually know what to look for i don't have a good system as to how i can get the most knowledge from this analysis in itself do you have something that's always constantly running through your head when you're looking at a match to say okay need to look at this need to look at this are there some key areas uh, there is something that's constantly running but it's not like i have to look at this i have to look at that yeah. It's something that I just do. Yeah. I can't really turn it off. So I have to sometimes struggle to turn it off because when I'm doing, for instance, solo, I shouldn't do as much of this. I should take more the lead role and mix it with the analytical role, whereas the color commentator is the analytical thing. Yeah. But also not, not straightly uh, coaching analytical because, I mean, then they should put a... A microphone on the coach or the coach's brain and stuff, stuff like that, that that easily becomes boring so i think um getting the right amount of analysis is correct but also notice other stuff and uh, telling what, what what could the psychology be in, in this situation and why do we think this is happening and so on so there is not a system that i've created but there is a system that i've been doing and then that's working but nowadays, with the computer technology and video uh, analysis, I know most of the bigger nations, they have a full-time uh, video analyst. So they're able to build systems and say, okay, we want to know what are the uh, short serves from the uh, left service field when it's uh, this player to that player and so on. And you can just get it up uh, statistically. But uh, yeah, that's, uh, that, that developed, that took off after I uh, left as, uh, as national coach in Denmark. And, and the video and the computers uh, got more sophisticated. Um, so a lot of time goes into this video analyzing. And, and uh, that, that's just a tough job to, to do that. Whilst I still uh, rely a lot on the eyes that see it and, and the experience. So 
I think there's also um, ability to sort of take away things that are not important. And that's that's what I, I hear sometimes when unexperienced coaches, they, they notice things and they put more or less the same emphasis on two different things where one is important and the other one is totally unimportant. So, so the ability to change, uh, to select the important situations and, um, and get the right results out of it. I think that's, that's what makes a good analyst. Yeah. And I guess for part of your role as a commentator is that delicate balance between the analysis that you're naturally doing in your head and, and providing that user experience as yes. well. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, how do, how do you talk about, you know, square watermelons as well as, you know, Kenta Momoto's, you know, smash or defense at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> and just trying to excite the, the viewer as well um, of the match. And, and and this thing that I mentioned as a young coach where I wanted people to see how good a coach I was by the winnings of my players, I also feel that sometimes as a commentator, when you pointed out a thing and, and suddenly there's a situation where, hey, I was right. So, But I don't have to say it. I sometimes do it, but, but I really shouldn't. I mean, it's for people themselves to figure out if I was right or if I was wrong. And I don't say, okay, there's another situation. I was wrong here, and here I was wrong again. Only if I've made some prediction uh, that we can discuss, and I've, I've been totally wrong. And of course, Jill will uh, tease me, and uh, <laughs> I will have to admit that, hey, I was wrong here. That's been uh, that's definitely not the case, or whatever it was. So it, it's all about adding to the viewer experience. It's, it shouldn't be about me uh, showing my coaching ability or my commentator ability. But most of all, it should be that if we're not there, people should say, hey, we're actually missing. I wonder what um, Christine or Jill or Morton or whoever, I wonder what they would have said about this situation. I wonder what their take would be mm. so that we add value to the pictures. Yeah. Do you, do you feel that your experience in commentating now, if you were going to step back and go into, say, let's say national team coaching again, do you feel that your experience commentating has brought another element that you would use in your actual coaching itself? Or do you think it's a bit separate? Uh, I'm not sure it has. It has brought extensive view on international badminton because I see more matches than the coaches see probably. Uh, That's not true perhaps, but but they get filtered matches that are... are, um, directed at the match that they have um, the next day with this player. But I see a lot of different uh, matches and I see all the quarterfinals or all the semifinals or whatever. And as a coach, I'm not certain that you you see all of these matches. So for instance, uh, I pick up on drifts or shuttle speed a little bit easier than if you only have one match on the on the center court or, or whatever so, but when it's difficult to use it in, in coaching um, generally i think yeah awesome well Steen, um we've been talking for quite a long time now i don't know if it's felt long for you it hasn't felt too long but i just checked the timer and where we've been going on for quite a bit of time so just to start wrapping up here Steen, we usually end the podcast or finish up the podcast with a few takeaways for the listener so let's just say if someone's listening to this podcast episode and they wanted to know, say, Steen's top three tips in either developing their players. So let's just say there's a coach listening. And what, what are the three top tips you would say to a coach or a player trying to develop themselves that you've found probably the most important things or the key things that you've learned throughout your career? I think 
The most important thing is uh, the relationship between player and coaches. You, you, I think the best results you get if you like the ones that you're working with. And then secondly, I think if you want to become really, really good as either a coach or a player, be knowledgeable. It doesn't matter whether you do things one way or the other. So try to become as knowledgeable as you can. And I want to like it to medicine. If I'm mildly ill, I want nice doctor. If I'm terminally ill, I want a fantastic, knowledgeable doctor. I don't care if he or she is nice. I just want them to know what they're doing. So if you can combine that, then I think you have a really, really good coach. It's important also to not overestimate your own importance and your own uh, sort of impact on the players. So once in a while, uh, things take time and you have to be patient. Yeah. That one's been a really big one for me in terms of what I've heard you say, Steen, is just at the close to the start of the podcast when you basically said it's not about me proving myself to be a good coach, it's about me helping that person. And yes, they could kind of mean the same thing. So if you help them, then you're a good coach, but it's it's helping them first. It's not being a good coach and then you help them. It's help them first, which makes you a good coach, but you're not looking for that second thing. It comes naturally when you do the right thing. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So, Steen, we just want to say thank you so much for spending the time with us today to record this episode and to bring our listeners some more insights, some knowledge that they can take with them for their badminton careers and coaches as well. And it's just great to actually speak to you kind of, it's not really in person, but it's kind of in person because I'm so familiar with your voice. It's still quite uncanny just to hear your voice and being able to speak to you. So first of all, from Henry, myself and all the listeners, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. Thanks, Dean. Thank you for having me and uh, good luck with uh, the rest of the lockdown period. <laughs> Thank you so much. So for everyone listening out there, make sure you do share this podcast with everyone that you know, because there's so much wisdom in here. So let's let's make sure the wisdom gets out there because Dean's brought us so much great stuff. And most importantly, make sure you do get out there and show the world how incredible badminton is. And whether or not you are a coach or you're looking to become a commentator, make sure that you add value to the viewer or you add value to the player that you're trying to develop and come from a place of contribution rather than a place of showing yourself how valuable you are as a coach or commentator so that you can make Steen proud. And if you want to connect with us, you can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and TikTok via our social media handle, Volantware, V-O-L-A-N-T-W-E-A-R, or via our website, volantware.com. Feel free to reach out to us and ask any questions and request any topics for episodes or any special guests like Steen so that we can continue to give you guys the best episodes about badminton available. So we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Volantware, the most versatile badminton apparel you'll ever own.